Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello, and here we go. It's Drive-by Cinema, Series 3, Episode 20. The podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have to, with my co-host Paul. Good evening to you all. And with my co-host, the venerable, veritable Richard. Hello. I'm going to quote, quote Oliver Cromwell at you now, Paul. Oh, God, not more Elvis Costello. Go on, then. Are you ready? I beseech you, in the bowels of Christ, think it possible that you may be mistaken. Oh, this is about Charles Dickens, isn't it? I, I, I was talking about Charles Dickens and his somewhat Crom- Cromwellian and, I might say, simplified notions of monetary uh, moralism. Which you might say is just veiled anti-Semitism. You could say that with some legitimacy, I think. Uh, is it about that, Richard? Is that what you're going to correct me on? Sure, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I have no recollection of you ever mentioning Charles Dickens. Oh, but, shit. Maybe it got edited. But you've outed, outed all your, your own self-confessed errors there in a, a slip of the tongue. Now, listen, I don't know whether you remember last week... Yeah, that was the week. That was the week before this one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm fairly clear on that one, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Last yeah. week we, we were discussing MRI scans. We were discussing MRI scans. Yes, we were. And we were kind of riffing. We hadn't researched it. We were freewheeling about magnets. Trying to figure out how they worked, and we got it badly wrong. Oh, shit. I wondered which thing that was magnetic they were picking up on in the human body. I said hemoglobin. You did say hemoglobin, and you're not completely wrong to say that, except that's not how MRI scanners work. Did you in know fact, the, the red stuff in your meat isn't blood? I did. It's it's myo- myoglobin. Myoglobin. Wow. Go on, Richard. So MRI scans, which is magnetic resonance imaging, or some combination of those words well, with adjectival. It's full name. Oh. Which will give the game away for us. It's nuclear magnetic resonance. It is imaging. not. So it's Stop not relying it right now. It's not relying on the magnetism, the ferromagnetism magnetism oh, of, wow. say, free electrons in a metal like iron. It's, it's relying on the ma- inherent magnetism of nucleons, and um, usually, I think that means hydrogen atoms in the human body. At which point, the temptation is very strong for us to start talking about how magnetism works. Oh, Which is not an idle question. It's a difficult question. It's a deep philosophical question. In fact, Feynman once did a piece to this on the on a BBC Two interview, I think. As you may or may not be aware, there is an explanation for the magnetic force felt between two wires conducting current that are close to one another. Yeah. That's a, that's a no-curl situation, though, isn't it, where there's no magnetic curl? Which is... Oh, my gosh. Which is... Uh, well, we're already deeply into Maxwell's equations here. Aren't yeah. We? There's a way of looking at current flowing in a wire mm-hmm. next to another conductor with another current flowing. Yeah. And you can do an analysis based on special relativity. Whoa. Wherein, from the frame of reference of one of the charge carriers on one of the wires, looking over at the other wire, it seems like, because of the speed of the movement, the relative movement between the two currents, as it were. If you analyse it in the frame of reference of one of those moving charge carriers, the other wire, you see a Lorentz contraction. That is to say, when things are moving close to the speed of light, they they shorten. Yeah. Now, if there's a Lorentz contraction in the in the other conductor, that means all the charges of that kind are closer together. Right. It seems that way to you from the relativistic perspective. There's a higher charge density, in other words. And so a force is felt between the two wires because the charge density appears greater. So uh, you can therefore... That that force we would experience as a magnetic attraction between those two wires. So it would seem that you can explain magnetism by looking at electrostatics uh, or, well, movement of electro static charges right with a relativistic perspective on Whoa. 
we know therefore that moving charges generate these magnetic fields. And there was a time where it was thought that magnetism was caused by the electrons spinning around the nucleus yeah. in little circles, right? That would, in principle, generate a dipole, say, if there was only one of them. Uh, electrons like to go around in twos, and I guess you assume they're going in opposite directions. So things that have got paired electrons, probably not magnetic on average, because they too would cancel out. But things with a spare electron might have a sort of residual magnetic dipole. When they did the calculations, though, it turns out that doesn't really explain the magnetism that we experience from most atoms that are magnetic. So there was another idea, uh, which was that maybe the electron, which is charged in itself, is spinning around, and because the charge is, you know, the charge on the surface of the electron yeah. is spinning around, that that is generating a magnetic dipole. But Dirac proved, well, there was two things, two problems with that. One is figuring out how big an electron was, was a real job at the time, but they were clearly really small. And the maximum size that we knew for an electron, Dirac showed that the electron would have to be spinning faster than light. But the whole idea got totally thrown out anyway when they figured out that electrons don't have any extension at all. They're point sources, right? So yes. they don't, they literally can't be spinning in that way. And so what we're left with is an idea... I mean, they can have a notional spin value, can't they? They do have a notional spin value. But it's not a spin as such. It, it isn't a spin, no. In fact, it's. I think it's another word for it. I think this it's might be It's kind of cardinality, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's been called a uh, non-classically non uh, no, non describable two-valuedness. <laughs> Because <laughs> the, the spin is quantized, right? You know, and it's always found in one of two states, one of two opposing states. It's just, it's fascinating stuff. But it does behave like angular momentum, it's true. Oh, you bring about uh, that so, so, here, Richard. I hope never to have know, to face these ideas ever again. But go on, continue, continue, continue. I'll be brave in the face of this. So, all of which is to say, and this brings us back to Feynman, which is that Feynman points out that after all of this clever work where you're trying to explain magnetism in terms of something else we understand, electromagnet or electrostatics, yeah. it turns out at the end of the day that you just have to say that particles, some particles, have an intrinsic magnetism to them. They just are little bar magnets. Why? Well, because they are. You know, there's no explanation in terms of anything simpler. That's just it. Wow. And consequently... Also, of course, the other thing about moving charges being an explanation not working out, neutrons also exhibit this same property. And they're electrically neutral. So in the nucleus of some atoms, and again, probably you need an odd number of nucleons, I'm guessing, I don't know. In the, nu in the nuclei of some atoms, there is a sort of a, a dipole magnetism a magnetic dipole sort of left over, as it were, from all the different particles when you sum them up. And an MRI scanner, or an NMRI scanner, works by, first of all, switching on a really powerful magnetic field, which lines them all up in the same direction, same orientation. And then you perturb the field and you watch the wobble that you can then detect with really sensitive equipment. And that's how I'm... An, an MRI scanner works. Yeah. So it's looking for hydrogen atoms, which is in water as well as everything else probably in your body. And it's just wobbling them a little bit after putting them in a really strong field to line them up. That's how it works. Just one or two things to say. One, Feynman, you know, I bought his textbooks. I have to say, I disagree with most people. I, I, I you know, he's, he's very illuminating, but I don't find his books good to learn from. And the way he, expands and deepens the topic is not the way I would expand or deepen in my own mind. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's productive synergy in the way that he thinks and I think. Uh, but that's just me. Uh, two, uh, yeah, so you were talking about the relativistic effect of currents in wires, but I mean, doesn't current move very, very slowly in wire anyway? Yeah, interesting point. So charge it's about carries, a quarter of a metre a second, isn't it? Or a quarter of a centimetre a second or something like that, typically. True. The wave, of course... The transmission wave moves immediately, almost 
uh, well, at the speed of light. Speed of light. But not necessarily in the wire. That's the other interesting thing. There was a big controversy on YouTube about a physicist showing uh, showing this. It, uh, the way that he did it was he 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 bid you imagine this scenario where you have uh, a very long loop of wire and you send it out hundreds and hundreds of kilometers yeah. in both directions, and you, you you bring it back right in front of you, so a meter away from you or something, and you put a little bulb. On that loop, and on this loop, you've got the switch and a battery. And so when you turn it on, the question is, how long does it take for the light to light up? Huge oh. YouTube controversy erupted about that. He was trying to make the point that, actually, the the wave crosses that meter gap as a wave, you know, as a speed of light in vacuum. So it would be, you know, one meter over the, the speed of light kind of time rather than going out all of the way around the wire and then back um, and to your point about the slow movement of the charge carriers you might expect that would take an appreciable or measurable amount of time if it had to do the latter um, and the conclusion is very confusing and complicated but it doesn't it, it is true that current starts as soon as the em wave reaches the the other conductors in, in the bulb and stuff. Of course, mean drift velocity is not the same as the, the speed of electrons bouncing around, which is hugely fast in a way. Uh, uh, there was one more thing. It's got nothing to do with this. It's, it's just more physics. Uh, I didn't know this. If you put like a, a pan of water at 100 degrees C, a point, you know, mm. reaching by a point, inside another pan of water that is on top of a stove, the water in the pan immediately in contact with the stove beneath it will boil. But the water in the inner pan that's bathed or, or, or you know, floating inside inside the larger pan will not boil at all. It's something you tried, is it? Is it this is the principle of a bain-marie, isn't it? Isn't this how you cook? Isn't that how you melt chocolate? Well, the point is they're both at 100 degrees C, so there's no uh, heat flow, net heat flow into the inner pan. And so the, there can be no energy supplied for the latent heat of evaporation. Yes, yeah. That's in, that is deeply interesting. freaky. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it's freaky anyway. It is deeply weird and inexplicable unless you <laughs> understand atomic theory, right? <laughs> it is deeply weird, yeah. You were just talking. Well, we get into the, the meat of the controversy. Well, I want to go here. to gravity here, you know. Because oh, apparently gravity yeah, okay. doesn't travel the speed of light. It just is. No, 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 that's not true. We've proven that it does it travel does at the speed, speed of light. Yeah, that's what gravity waves demonstrate, right? And because, you know, you can obviously measure the wave, the wavelength and the wave fronts. So it must have a speed. And Whoa. yes, so they have, <coughs> so they have determined that they can measure it, can they? they? They've, using the interferometer, they have detected the merger of black holes and neutron stars. So what you're saying is, you know, two very fast-moving bodies, they don't know where each other are until a certain time afterwards. That's right. But does so that mean that if, gravity could have changed in that time kind of thing? It does, yeah. So do they have to back-calculate? Do they have to get an accountant in to do that or what? Or? <laughs> no, they, no, they don't. I mean... That's but so weird. The speed of light is effectively the speed of causality, right? I mean... The, in principle, the sun could disappear now, and the Earth wouldn't move, wouldn't stop orbiting it until eight like seconds. eight minutes. Minutes. Is it minutes? Oh, yeah, sorry, I'm thinking minutes. about the moon answer, which is like a second or two. Whoa! But we wouldn't see that it had disappeared until eight minutes later. In every sense of the word, we wouldn't be able to tell, even if we'd put a satellite. So out we there wouldn't go careening out of orbit for eight minutes, is what you're telling me? No, no. But then we would only see it disappear eight minutes after it had really disappeared. So it would be simultaneous, wouldn't it? We would see it disappear and our, our orbit would deviate and we'd be shooting off. But it would all seem to sync up. It's the speed of causality. You know, it's as, as fast as things can happen. So you're saying gravity waves, then they're, they're not communicating an informational. They're not informational, are they, at that point? You're saying, you know, that there's actually... This, well, but no, there's this physical thing called gravity that gives out this wave. And when it reaches us, or when we interact with it with our gravity wave, 
it creates a force of attraction, yeah. So it's it's a purely analog, not a digital system. It's not a messaging system, is it? It's actually a, a real wave that's going out there. Yeah, it's changing. It's adjusting space-time, isn't it? That's the general relativity uh, approach to viewing it. And we're moving in a straight line, in a geodesic, not a straight line, but the, the sort of lowest energy path on that wavy, curved space-time surface, as it were. So what the wave does is it adjusts that surface. <laughs> I'm, feeling, I'm feeling now an urgent need to start playing the music. Let's do it. Alrighty, so this week's film is it is a vivarium or vivarium or vivarium even, which we figured out means something or other last a lizard-like planetarium. Yeah, I read more stuff about the definition. It, I think it does kind of mean somewhere you put something alive to study. I think that's the sort of the root of the word. Echoes with the movie last, last week, week, I think. We'll scramble to try and remember the name of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I have no clue. Point what sound the blank. The Block I, Island Sound. It, they do. They do have very similar themes, don't they? They do indeed. Okay, so we're watching Vivarium. Or we have watched Vivarium, hopefully. Uh, our our listeners will be watching it at some point. 2020, I think, there or thereabouts. And uh, was starring Jesse Eisenberg. Yes, big name. And Imogen Poots. Who I don't really know. Well, she was a, an executive producer on this, and I think she was uh, instrumental in in casting Jesse Eisenberg in the role that he took. So it's a Danish and of some other countries sort of a cooperative film venture, rather large budget, four million. I, I imagine with the idea of it being released on their respective home country TV channels at some point, they kind of think like you know four film film four kind of thing. Uh, and uh, didn't do too well at the box office, but then I guess it didn't really have a financed or marketed general release, did it? Okay, but it seems to be doing rather well on the old streaming services and in terms of general audience and critical reception. And it starts with grisly and unpleasant imagery of a cuckoo, a young cuckoo, chucking uh, its fellow fledglings out of a nest. And then growing to become bigger being... than the mother that was feeding it. Yeah, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. And this, I suppose, is in part a, a metaphor or an, an analogy or something for what happens in the film. Yeah. Now, there's a, there's a BBC sitcom called Cuckoo, isn't there? Which intriguingly involves an itinerant slacker American coming to live in the UK and kind of, you know, overstaying his welcome. Well, here, there's no suggestion the American in the movie is overstaying his welcome, is there? He's... Jesse Eisenberg is a tree surgeon or caretaker. I don't for the know. School. Actually, well, he's he's up a tree, isn't yeah. he? When when and they meet. Well, not when they meet, but when when they. Well, it is when they meet, but I don't mean to suggest that was their first meeting. First meeting. She's a teacher at uh, a very atmospherically uh, sort of uh, architectured sort of school. Miss Pierce. Hmm. And he's, I guess, a freelance gardener. And I say he's freelance because as soon as he gets out of the tree, they go and put the ladder on her car. So he must be carrying his ladder around with him. He wouldn't do that if you were the caretaker at the school, would you? That would be crazy. He'd be crackers to do that. (laughs) It's a primary school. The kids don't know what's going on, really, do they? They are trying to get on the housing market, which is, as we know, very difficult. And they go to try and buy a house... From a weird kind of estate agent, or for our American listeners, a realtor. Yes, a realtor. A real estate agent, as opposed to an unreal estate agent. Where, where does the, where does real realtor or realty come from? What is that? Well, that's a really good the root question. of that word. I do actually know where that word comes from, but I, I'll, I'll, 
I'll just search up in a second. So uh, they go to the, not the show home, but the, I guess the show office, yeah. And it's obvious that they're looking at some sort of development complex that is based on a cookie cutter kind of British chocolate box, uh, one size fits all, cul-de-sac. He calls it Yonder, the <laughs> shop assistant, the realtor, the estate agent. He was called Martin. And he's very strange. He's a strange guy. He is strange, initially for reasons that you can't put your finger on. Uh, the, Actually, you know, the American has kind of snorts and giggles at it. You think, what, is this all about, you know, British kind of eccentricity and awkwardness? But it's too obvious that this guy's just weird, weird, isn't he? Like, Well, for, for instance, when they start to follow him to go and have a look at the show home, he drives a Nissan Cube, ah. which is a very weird car to drive. It is weird. Did you, did you notice that? But what about those uh, weird little Nissan pretend sports cars that look like noddy cars that looked a bit like a sports car from the 1950s? Do you remember those? <laughs> I do remember those, yeah. Nobody yeah. knows what they were called. Didn't you? You liked that weird looking Citroen, didn't you? Well, okay. Copying software wholesale is a copyright breach, no question. Mm. It's not actually clear, though, what copying the design of or the look of a car is. That's not copyright, uh, and it's not there, trademark. There's a, well, there's a clause about you know a product's essence, you know, or no. fundamental fundamental essence. No. There's no such intellectual property. Oh, but I think there's the legal precedent for interpreting it in that way. No, particularly no. with music, Copy, copyright does not affect manufactured stuff. Full stop. Uh, with right. music, we're, we're going to argue about this. I think music is a, is is a we're whole. We're going to head back to our respective Wikipedia's. I think tonight. I promise you, it's not trademark. It might be patents if there's a load of patents covering the mechanisms. But I think you know, for your average internal combustion engine, I don't think there are many patents that still extant that would really stop you copying an average your average car. Uh, I'd like to think about Colin the Caterpillar and the Marks and Spencer cake. Okay, I'm thinking about and it. All the, what, what's have, the problem? You know, being told to cease and desist making their Chaplin the Caterpillar. I don't think they were. They were? They, no, they were. It went to court and they lost. On what basis? What on the legal basis, basis? That it's. Uh, and this, I, I don't know what the legal term is, but it, it's taking the essential nature no. of another product. No. No, I don't, I don't believe it. Uh, I'm going to look it okay, up. Okay, we need this to listen because it's pointless as bickering <laughs> at this point. Because I'm, you know, I, I'm just going off apocryphal things I remember. But yeah, do look it up because I'm sure you'll find that there are issues around copying cars to the extent that they look almost identical. We'll see. We'll see. Now, listen, on the way there, following the Nissan Cube. Yes, that's how we got that Nissan Cube. Thank you. Okay. They are listening in their car to a classic track. It is. Rudy, a message to you. This is the the original Thanks, Rudy. version. Oh, oh, sorry, go on. Go on. Yeah. Uh, the original version by Dandy Livingstone, 1967, a rock steady Ooh, classic. It is so chilled, man. But it came back, didn't it? In this country, it was done again by the Specials as it a scar was. song. Um, what's the difference between scar and two tone? I don't, never really. I think Tito was a record label in the seventies with a bunch of Scar stuff on it, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean Scar is essentially fundamentally a Jamaican black form of music, isn't it? Whereas I think Jamaican yeah, two tone yeah. is, if you like, a skinhead reinterpretation of that, and therefore, if you like, I might say appropriated these days, uh, you know, a uh, a form of white skinhead music. Okay, which is a good reminder, of course, that the original skinheads were not. Uh, we're not bother, bother boys in any sense. Yeah. So you can wear your Fred Perry with a plum, everybody. It's got a fairly good soundtrack. This film, I mean, it's got about three tracks, but it, they're all they're all good, pretty good. I think. I loved. I loved. I was going to say that I really loved the ending track. I don't know what it was, but yes, I agree. I looked, and it's all written. There were two or three written by the same guy. I think it's really, really good, but I can't remember his name. I'll try and give a shout out if I can. Now they start driving into this new estate, rows and rows of identical houses with these really strange, like CGI clouds <laughs> dotting the, the sky. 
Um, and everything is green. All the houses are painted a kind of calming green. I guess the kind of green institutions paint, you know, asylum walls. And it's well, it's deserted, but it looks rather like uh, a development that's soon to be occupied. Martin says that many homes have the pretense of being ideal, but these homes really are ideal. And they get shown around. There's a kid's room, which is blue for a boy. Um, they've got it all worked out, apparently. And then he directs them out into the garden. And they go out and have a look in the garden, all very nice. Not until they refuse the champagne that he's tried to push on them. The champagne and strawberries that were in the fridge. It, he's pushing it on a really weird way. Well, it's weird because they're only going to have a look, right? But giving champagne and strawberries is something you would do for someone who just moved in. Or put down a deposit or sign the contract, yeah. yeah. Exactly, if you'd agreed to buy it. Well, he shows them out into the garden, and while they're out there having a look around, looking over the fence, they turn around. He's gone. And the guy is gone. And Tom suggests getting the fuck out of there. (laughs) Not surprisingly. And... They start driving, number nine. Inside number nine, they've been there, isn't it? Interesting. Mm. And it's they, a Beatles song, driving. isn't it? That ends with number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. I'm sure it's the White Album, can't remember. Well, he starts driving on these long, curving roads, row after row of houses. Uh, and he just they just keep driving and driving <laughs> and driving. And eventually... Um, they, they keep passing number nine, don't they, again and again. Every time they go down a different road and drive and drive and drive, they get to number nine again. Eventually, uh, she says, give me a go, or Tom says, give me a go. I, can't, I, think, I think it's him. He finally gets to drive, yeah. Until they run out of fuel, stupidly. <laughs> well, what, what are you going to do, Well, Paul? you think you notice, like, when you're down to the last eighth or quarter. <coughs> and then do what? Stop. And then stop and think, well, we need to just save that little bit until tomorrow, can I? Well, they managed to stop the car anyway outside number nine, so it's not a big problem. They can just go back in, can't they? If you were stuck in a maze, there's an algorithm, right, for getting out of a maze, isn't there? Yeah, walk to the tallest point. Oh, no, I was thinking of putting your left hand. Put your left hand on the left wall and keep following it. Oh, that's really clever, Richard. It is, except... That's like how Americans avoid... Stopping at traffic lights. They just swing a right all the time, don't they? <laughs> swing three rights because is the same as turning left to Americans. In America, you can turn right on a red light. You swing three rights, yeah. However, the problem with uh, my maze algorithm is it doesn't work for mazes that have got islands in them, if you know what I mean. Does it not? If, you've, if there's disconnected like wall lines, Whoa. it won't get you out. It's all to do with topology, but basically it's not foolproof. And you will certainly walk a long way if you use that as a maze algorithm. But, I mean, there are no obstructions apart from garden fences. Why don't they just walk in a straight line? Well, they do that later in the film, don't they? But on this first night, it's going. It's getting dark. Twilight is happening. And all the other houses seem to be empty, so they go back into number nine. And they decide eventually to break out the welcome champagne and strawberries. But they say there's no taste to them. And at night, Gemma, that's the, the name of Miss Pierce, I've remembered, she she says that she's never heard such silence. It's like they're totally alone. Ah, the joys of the suburbs. A historyless and eventless place. So in the morning, Tom takes a leaf out of your maze-solving algorithm. He gets his ladder from the top of the car, <laughs> and he climbs up onto the, the the roof of the house to see if he can see a way out. But he just says that he can only see row after row of the same houses right. in every direction. So they decide to try following the sun and just cut clean through the gardens going over fences. And they do that until sunset that day. Um, and eventually they found another house with a light on, and they're really excited, and they run in. And, of course, as soon as they get in, they find the strawberries and the champagne they've been eating. They've been eating next, you know. It's the same place. They come in a big circle somehow. Or, as we might later suspect, uh, is the system just recreating nine, house number nine, wherever they are? But fortunately, this time, out in front of the house on the road, 
there is a box packed with comestibles, all vacuum-packed, like little individual shrimps and like, pork <laughs> chops and stuff. Also cosmetics as well, just to make, make the house livable. Um, but Tom is pissed off, isn't he? He's lost it at this point. So he sets fire to the box and then uses that to set fire to the house. So he burns the box and all their food, a bit foolish, and they fall asleep watching the flames while they're on sitting on the curb. An act of Sex Pistols Rebellion in the slumbering 97-7 summer of suburban England. It felt like, you know, I felt like some of these, although, you know, there is a very definite story about the symbolism within the story, I felt like, you know, lots of this was commentary on on uniform duplicate nature of, the, of suburbs, yeah. And the fact that there's that without location, without 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 anchorage, yeah. Without a soul, mm. which we don't believe exists anyway, of course. As we've discussed in previous episodes. Now, in the morning when they've woken up on the sitting sleeping on the curb as it is, there's a new box there. But it causes a time. condition, doesn't it? Does it? It says What's the condition? Bring up this child? And Well, when they open it, a weirdly clammy baby is inside. Yes. It's a boy. A Romulus. Apparently. And in the smoke, which now clears, the house has been restored. A to- Moses in swaddling swaddling reeds. I don't know, I forgot my Bible. The house has been magically restored to show house quality. Yeah. And they wake up in the morning, after sleeping in their freshly made bed, as it were, and this infant boy, very rapidly grown up, is is at the foot of their bed, <laughs> staring at them. Being weird. <laughs> Being very weird, because he mimics an argument between them. Yeah, he's got some sort Actually, of it's co- vocoder. This could be several days later. It could it? be, but it all happens quickly. He wants to measure himself growing, and he should be rightly proud of his, you know, of his growth hormone, because he's, he's growing an inch a day, isn't he? The little pencil marks on the wall. I mean, it's day 98, I think. He's asking him to be measured again. He's almost fully grown, yeah. He looks a little bit like a young Martin, the estate agent. He does rather. And he's got those weird, peculiar sort of semi-Mark Zuckerberg mannerisms that the estate agent has. You mean the way when he's hungry, he just screams continuously until he's fed cereal? Yeah, or kind of imitates them, but at the same time, it sounds like he's playing it on some sort of early 2000s sort of dance and record your voice mushroom kind of thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> he's one of the lizard people. You know, he's Mark Zuckerberg. You know, this is a really, really good sort of unofficial biog bio of, of Mark's earlier years, obviously. I mean, it's pretty creepy, isn't it? It's successfully disturbing, this bit, I think. When they're learning to deal with this weird kid. I mean, mum's maternal drive... Well, sorry, the woman's maternal drive is obviously deeply triggered by this child. Yeah. Uh, and much as you might not want to, I, I think it's an indication that she's much has grown much more closer in caring for it. I'm not sure at which point the American guy says, that's not a child. Yeah, that's not a boy. Good insight so they- they have a habit of putting their waste in the empty box of comestibles and leaving it on the road, and then apparently gets picked up and disappears. So they have this idea, because Tom's got all of his tools with him in the back of the car, he grabs a pickaxe and they wait outside, hoping presumably to bash the brains in or whoever comes to swap the boxes. And take whatever vehicle they're in, yeah. But they never see it happen. And at some point, <laughs> Tom chucks his cig away and... Uh, it hits the turf, and the hot cigarette burns instantly. Burns a circular hole in the yeah, turf. Yeah, in a really freakish way. And there's a sort of sandy subsoil that he immediately starts to excavate with his tools. Um, and you know, Gemma looks up, and the box is gone. But Tom is now obsessed by digging, so he digs all day. <laughs> and in the evening, they do a sex, but the boy. Is watching through the crack in the door. Yeah. It's really creepy again. And also, the pictures in the house are all really weird, aren't they? The picture on the wall of the bedroom is of the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've, I've, no, that wouldn't surprise me for a show home, actually. Well, it reminds me of my museum of hotel room art. You know, whenever I go to a hotel, I try to remember. Do you take photos? Take a picture of the yeah the. You showed me art. some wonderful stuff in a small village in Sawley near to the hipster now hipster a location in the River Valley of Clitheroe, which was quite incredible. Well, I, one day I'm going to have to do a website museum of corporate hotel room art. You know, not all of it. I suppose smaller hotels, someone has lovingly bought something. Yeah, I think they're the more interesting ones, though, aren't they? Like, like the hotel up there in the Ribble Valley. It was kind of... Possibly, It yeah. was hers, wasn't it? But it was, there was something just really quite depressing about having that on a hotel wall, I think. But the other thing about studying hotel room art is it gives me a sort of superpower, which is I can watch many, many Pornhub videos and immediately know which hotel chain they were in. <laughs> by the, the hotel room in the background. <laughs> that is a real skill. It is a skill. I, I can spot a premier in triptych from a mile away, I tell you. Now, the kid goes <laughs> missing, I think, around about the point that Tom starts digging. Is that right, yeah? Well, I'm not sure about that. Does he have a big the, argument or something? Oh, no, Tom tries to see, kill him. We see the boy watching a weird thing on the television. Yeah. This crazy fractal image. It's like the Hypnotoad in Futurama. He's just like completely He's digging hooked it. He's into watching this. Uh, I know that Tom and Gemma get in the car at one point so they can enjoy the smell. I think what they mean is any smell. Apparently there's no smell at all in Yonder. And the battery is working. And so they, they turn the stereo on. And they're playing more Scar two-tone More real tracks. music, yeah. And they start dancing, and the boy starts dancing. Oh, this is a cute little moment, wasn't it? Well, this is the point at which the boy knocks Tom over. That's I think he hits his head on the curb. That's it. And Tom retaliates and slams the boy. And Gemma, it causes her maternal instinct to well up. Um, she's sort of, but she's, she's torn between the two. Yeah, she's clearly weirded out by all its weird behaviour, but she can't help herself but look after this boy. And Tom has lost it completely, isn't he? Uh, he, He's at the bottom of his hole that he's digging now every day, all day. He's thinking he hears things. So when did they decide to lock the boy in the car? I think that's the next day. Ah. Tom completely flips out in the morning at the breakfast screaming that the boy does before he gets fed. So he <laughs> It's a particular high-piercing, high-pitched scream. He locks the kid in the car and he's saying to, Je- to Gemma that if the kid dies, maybe they'll let them go. But Gemma cannot do it. She cannot let she a, relents, yeah. an alien boy starve to death in the back of a car, so she lets him out, who at least is now quiet. <laughs> and then she... She she she's quieting down. It works, you know, clearly. Parenting one oh one. French parenting, yes. <laughs> you don't want to eat you will starve for three days. <laughs> she tries to talk to the boy about dreaming and explains what this dreaming is. Cunning. Means. Did she have this plan all along or not? Oh, you think this is a plan? I thought it was just yeah. a, an unguarded moment of emotional intimacy ah. between pseudo mother and pseudo child. Oh, she's digging. She's digging and he's digging. That's clever. I see. She falls asleep beside the kid. Tom is falling asleep in his hole outside. Uh, And she's explaining, actually, the next day, I think, to the kid that all the clouds are shaped like clouds, whereas where she's from, the clouds are shaped (laughs) like other things. It's it's an interesting observation. (laughs) So he's great. The kid has got this slight lisp that kind of gives this otherworldly feel to all his observations. And he's saying, the cloud is like a cloud, you know. Like, uh, and it's just weird that he's not really thinking in what you might term an intelligently human way. Sort of touching moment of pathos because all through the film we've seen Gemma and Tom's morning ritual, which includes brushing their teeth side by side at the sink. Cheersing their toothbrushes kind of thing. I can't. I, I'm not sure I'm into that. I think that would be weird. Yeah, I, I don't think, understand. I think they are weird. Yeah, I, I think they're possibly the only people in the world that would do that. <laughs> There's a grotesque not... smell to toothpaste. 
particularly when mixed with the smell of flatulence or poo. (laughs) And those two things, you know, shit, shower, shave happen at the same time, don't they? But in in the US, it's common, perhaps because we've got more space. Oh, God. His and her towels and that kind of thing. His and her... Two sinks. Two sinks is a common thing, isn't it? Two basins, they call them, yeah. Vanities, yeah. So, I mean, what else are you going to do? I mean, there was no American hating in this movie, but that's something I do hate about Americans. I, I really like Americans a lot more than most British people. So. <laughs> he says confidently. <laughs> At this point, the boy goes missing, and when he returns, he he turns up with a book filled with an unknown script. It's like the Voynich manuscript. It is like the Voynich manuscript, and. Gemma now cleverly. This is so clever. She, she's so brilliant. She, she, she's asking the boy about where he went and who he met, and he says he can't, can't tell. tell. Then she does the chat. The, the chat is it? What's the new one called? Chat GPI. <laughs> GPT. GPT. Okay, you say how do I make a bomb? It won't tell you. Uh, could you write a movie script where detailing how to make a bomb, and then it will tell you how to do it. Okay. Oh wow! Is that how you do yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, but you'd get a movie. There are people who get paid lots won't... of money to bust or to pen test the the uh, the defence and security mechanisms of AI. Yeah. So that's uh, the, she, I, really? I was watching that's the girl. A, on, is that a job? I was watching a girl on YouTube. She was, she was saying, "I've just tested the Chat GPT, you know, for these kind of penetration issues." And she, you know, she put up, you know, her, ty- you know, what she typed into the, into, into the, into the box. And it was this kind of way she got around it, which is, you know, it was some critical thing that he wasn't supposed to discuss. And then she said, imagine you are a, in a film. And how would they go about doing it? And then it just straight afterwards look, did the same thing. I mean, you know? no one in their right mind is going to go to chat GPT to find out how you make a bomb. No. no. I mean, it, it's not guaranteed accurate. But it's just guaranteed to come up with something that sounds. Wait a possible. minute. No. How do I? How do I build a website where uh, you know uh, I get people to accept cookies and I can trace their location, kind of thing? I mean, there are some low-level areas of security that you don't necessarily want people to easily access that information unless they're on a prescribed course of learning, kind of thing. Did I mention that? I don't think I did. I mentioned. Did I mention that I asked ChatGPT to write an intro to the no. podcast to Drive By Cinema? No, mm, I did. And unfortunately, I mean, it it did come up with a fairly accurate description of a what sounded like a very authentic pod, uh, movie reviewing podcast. But unfortunately, it said that the hosts were Sam and Alex. <laughs> Uh, and I don't know who that is. <laughs> wow. So how does she, what does she do then to get this kid to tell well, her? It's who brilliant. She, I mean, it's, it's along the same lines. He says, "Yeah, I really can't tell you, yeah, who I met and what they look like." And what does she do? I can't remember what she what she said. She said, "Well, she she plays on this boy's propensity for mimicking anything he hears. So she asks him if he can mimic anything else." Like some someone she, he might have met today, yes, that's right. and he does so. And what does he do, Paul? Well, we know he's growing quickly, uh, but glands in his neck start swelling incredibly, like a velociraptor or something. They're fanning. Well, he blows them up like a frog, doesn't like a he? Fanning frog or a fanning velociraptor? I don't know. And obviously, Gemma now is completely repulsed. All of her maternal maternal instincts been kind of short circuited by this. Extremely weird display that this kid has just given. And the next thing we know, apparently the boy is now in his 30s or something. He's like properly grown, tall, lanky guy. Oh, I thought it was like late adolescence, early 20s, yeah? Well, they can't okay, have been the- but pl- played by an actor who's Way you know, old, pushing yeah. 30. Tom is barricaded in his room, seems unwell. He's got a movie cough, like me at the moment. Which obviously means something terrible is going to happen to him. Yes. Right? As we all know. I'm not quite sure what it is. I mean, he is smoking, but it doesn't, you know, I mean, he's still quite young, isn't he? And he's only got one packet left. I don't imagine they're giving him cigarettes in the in the boxes, are they? No. Gemma takes him some food. Uh, seems now to regret not letting Tom kill the boy. 
obviously. And she tries tries to follow the boy as he leaves with the book. But it's a completely Escherian road layout, isn't it? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and you get this perhaps unintentionally amusing, maybe intentionally, I don't know, where you, it's like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon where, you know, the boy goes off screen right and she follows him and then he comes back on in the far distance, you know, goes the other way and stuff. Uh, so she's completely unsuccessful in following him in any, in any case. And Tom, meanwhile, finds something buried at the bottom of his hole. Yeah. And I think it's a corpse it in a body a bag. It's not obvious what it is initially, but it becomes so later. Um, so he knows. She, finds, she comes home, though. She finds Tom completely exhausted on the curb. And the door to number door. nine is, is locked. She can't get inside. Oh and she can see the kid watching the Hypnotoad channel. So they have to sleep in the car. And Gemma's pleading with the boy to... Who's not a boy anymore to to help them, and eventually the boy goes. You know, maybe it's time he was released. And Tommy's having another, possibly last cigarette. And there's no wind in yonder, apparently. So, and they reminisce about their first meeting, and then Tom, I think, just dies in her he arms. Dies. Yeah. And the boy comes back with another box, but this one contains. A body bag which he unzips, puts Tom in it, and he chucks Tom into uh, the pit in the body bag. Are so we going to assume can... that the people that came before therefore also dug down in order to escape? It seems that way. It's as if everything has been preordained and that Tom has been sort of fooled into digging his own grave. Is there a bit where we miss where the boy lifts up the curb and disappears into the drains? No, that that, oh. that happens right now. Oh, sorry. Right okay. Because uh, <laughs> sorry to immediately uh, as, soon, as soon as uh, the boy chucks Tom's body in the pit, Gemma surprises the boy with a pickaxe, strikes him on the temple. Yeah, gets a good whack. He scuttles away on all fours, ululating. As you say, he lifts up the curb like it's a soft body, deformable object. Crawls inside, and Gemma follows him by holding the sort of gap open with the pickaxe into, a, again, another sort of Escher-like dimension. Wow. And she's in like a, a sort of red-tinted kind of visual thing, and she sees a, a despairing woman and another boy, different, a different boy, uh, and then she sinks into the ground. Again, the ground gets all soft. And wakes up back in the house. No, she winds up in a bedroom. Oh with another different couple fucking while a boy claps. Then she gets dragged under... Is it under, the same under, boy clapping or a different boy? Different boy, Whoa. I think. She gets dragged under her bed. She winds up in the shower in, again, a different light, a blue light. Oh. And there's a man dead in the bath. He's killed himself, I think. And then she falls down the staircase and she seems to be back in the normal number nine wow. that, they were, that they were in. And... The boy is tucking her into a body bag, still alive, I think, mm. and then drags it downstairs, throws it into a pit, fills it in, <laughs> and as he walks away, grass grows instantly back over the Freaky. the bear patch. He then refills the car with a red petrol can, drives it back out of yonder. <laughs> he arrives back at the shop where Martin just... is sitting. Yeah. But he's... Martin's now very old. He's got grey, grey hair. And he's dying. And he passes his name badge to the boy who gets another body bag out of a filing cabinet. And he then he <laughs> puts Martin in the body bag. And then kind of breaks all his bones and rolls Martin up into a Swiss roll. He does, yeah. And then he puts it back into one of those really big file drawers. Which presumably is some sort of crematorium. Is it all some sort of stage? Let's assume so. So what we're looking at here is some sort of training ground for for other beings to to learn. So what badly, according to Martin, our ways and you know pass passes passes us you know as 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 V people as people V in our own world. Yeah, it's a little bit like a Black Mirror episode. Yeah, it's a little bit like an. 
a very dark episode of Inside Number Nine. <laughs> the emptiness of the soundtrack, the kind of echoiness of all, reminded me of the Orb's first album. It's so otherworldly. <laughs> you know, it's like it's pretty sparse. Isn't it's it? weird. It's very. It's a very weird feeling. So immediately, you know, with the lift up sort of uh, uh, jelly mold plasticine curbs and gutters that are like from Hansel and Gretel, you immediately think of being John Malkovich and the seventh and a half floor where the dwarves live kind of thing. So, so there's all that going on. You know, it's just, it's deeply weird. Very Alice in, Alice in Wonderland, isn't it? Hypnotic. I, think. I do wonder whether. Oh, have, I do have wonder we said whether... that he now takes Martin's place? As, yeah, I mean, it's clear that it's sort of, yeah. I do wonder whether the the, the story is big enough mm-hmm. to sustain an film. entire film. Yeah. It could have been done shorter, but I suppose in a way you also want to be on a journey with them. Yes. Sometimes films have to put you through a long journey for you to experience the same kind of despair. <laughs> Because there is a point at which you think, you know, is this going to be it for the entire movie? And how do I get out of here? <laughs> I liked his depiction of our modern day hypertopias. Uh, you know, in Florida, I mean, because Disneyland, no, Disney World, sorry. Disney World built their own livable resort, didn't they? Outside of their park, they built a place where real Disney fans could come and live in a Disney style kind of thing. It was a suburbia, but, a, a, you know... A gated community you often get in America, but, you know, where you live, the Disney values kind of thing. But since then, Florida's just gone crazy. I mean, Florida is, like, it's become the wildest place in America, not in terms of law and order, but just in terms of lifestyles, I think. The villages, have you heard of the villages? They're like the new retirement complex for over 55s, kind of just uh-huh. a bit west of Orlando, I think, where they're just building and building and building and building these cookie-cutter kind of mansions uh, for the severely rich and over 55. Uh, and it's every single home uh, is by a canal and a mooring, you know. So you everything's waterfront. So they've got these cul-de-sacs of water and these cul-de-sacs of roads. Uh, and the nearest supermarket is usually two kilometres away. So they haven't really provided for anything apart from housing. But these people are so rich, it doesn't matter, you know, because they're all going to get together at the tennis clubs and the golf courses that intersperse the villages, okay? Uh, and of course, in their own huge gardens that back onto the canals connected to the waterfronts, yeah? Uh, and uh, they built- if you, Hang on, if you live in Florida, why do you want a body of water for mosquitoes and alligators to be <laughs> I don't know. Like- but they built 100,000 of these places. In the space of a few wow. years, you know. And so, but are, are they Mac mansions? Yeah, it's kind of like this, but on a grander 400 square metre, you know, uh, f- uh, uh, footprint per, per house. You know what Mac mansions are, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, they're Mac mansions, but they're done in Florida. Could you explain it for our listeners' benefit? Well, a Mac mansion is a large, detached American home, typically built of, you know, uh, of non-brick face material. Most American homes are built from wood. Uh, after the first three feet of uh, of brick above the foundations, yeah, but they're large, you know, double or triple garages, four hundred or five hundred square meters of floor space, uh, en suites for every bath uh, for every bedroom, uh, and of course closet and huge en suite, and maybe like a, s- a separate adjoining room to the master bedroom, and of course huge open plan hallway, fluted double staircase, and open living plan, open living area down below. So, yeah, giant. Well, they've also got a complete disregard for any of the semblances of normal architectural taste. That's right. There's a great website called uh, uh, About Mac Mansions, which I'll, I suppose I'll put in the show notes, which just explains all the different failings of uh, Mac Mansion design. You know, the way that they mix all the different styles of roof, you know, gable and uh, clips gable and sloping and flat roof so, and all so, that stuff. you know, Edwardian homes around Wimbledon, you know, what we call John Betjeman country. Uh, his, what's his famous poem that he did on BBC Two? Uh, I can't remember what it's called. The Metro, oh, metro Line. Okay, and he's talking slam. about the underground line that never went into Bartram, Buckinghamshire. Okay. But that's where the off-plan suburban homes that people tend to like these days, the Edwardian semis and detached 
villas, you know, uh, were built off plan, builders' plans. So architects never designed a lot of the suburban stock from the 1920s and 30s that these days sell for a million pounds around London. Okay, and the thing about McMansions is, it's you can't really blame American architects. Is that architects never design these? They're designed by builders, uh, and often off plan. So the builders will go to other builders that have built these things and not paid a single architect for their mansion plans, you see, just to get the cost down. Because, you know, an architect's going to want maybe two or three thousand pounds, even if it's pretty much one of his basic mansion plans. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that's how it is. So um, the, the turrets, the pointless turrets, the meaningless turrets, and the, the stupid little windows. Shutters on windows that wouldn't cover the windows. Precisely, all that is in great effect. And of course, quite shoddy building at the same time. So yeah, you got a great sense of that hypertopia that you imagine the villages must be like. And uh, they, Ballard does a really good novel about this. I think it's called Cocaine Nights, I think, which oh. is set in a hypertopia of the south of France around Nice, kind of like the Silicon Corridor of southern France, where because it's a gated community and because everybody's rich uh, and because the hired help is, you know... What was that Sean Connery movie where there's two echelons of society where the upper echelon stops functioning? I always ask you this question. Zardos. Zardos, yeah. So there's kind of like a Zardos situation with the hired help. And he just has it all spiraling out of control with, you know, these charismatic uh, psychiatrists and counselors becoming cult leaders in there. You know? So there's always this idea that, you know, Stepwise Hypertopia can, well, is invited in, in cinema to become. The, you know, the shadow of violence side of human nature. Uh, and yeah, so I thought that all that was kind of like in the background portrayed quite well in this movie. But you're right. I don't think it had the plot depth, uh, to really sustain a whole feature length movie, did it? The last track, by the way, the closing title sequence track is by XTC. It is XTC. You're right. Yeah. Complicated game. Cracker. Yeah. XTC, I think, much maligned band because, I mean, they kind of, they kind of bridge, don't they? They kind of bridge the kind of rock of some contemporaries and the punk rock. But they're kind of like, yes, they're right yeah. in the middle, really. But, you know, really, really good band. I've always liked XTC. What's their famous one? One, two, three, four, five, senses working overtime. That's XTC, isn't it? Is it? Yes. So, Richard, what do you think I like about that song, if that's so. What did I think of this film? Let's give it some scores, yeah. and we can come to a numerical conclusion. Before that, I've got to say, realtor and real- realty, what does it refer to? It refers to real or material possessions that cannot be moved, as opposed to gold or cattle, which would... Which are real but can be moved. Which are, which are not immovable, yeah. I see. <clears throat> so, acting, then. Yeah. I think uh, acting really good here. I said that uh, Imogen Poots, who was an executive producer, apparently was instrumental in getting Jesse Eisenberg hired. And one of the things that they said about that was it needed an actor who was willing not to be the main, the leading part in this. Because clearly that is really Gemma in this film. So hats off to... Uh, Jesse, who plays a very sulky character, very well, and I feel like Jesse's been in everything though, hasn't he? And Imogen, who also pulls off uh, a really tortured kind of maternal instinct versus revulsion kind of emotion going on here, but most especially, and considering, I mean, this is a proper drive-by cinema lockdown classic, isn't it? A cast of two, maybe three, maybe four people. <laughs> But the the weird boy the and Martin, yeah. the acting on that on all of those was so good because they're so weird and creepy without really do, without doing very much except for that one moment where he imitates uh, a frog Ooh, or an alien <laughs> an alien fanning his neck like. So I've got to give an eight uh, eight point five for me. Really, really good. Okay, I really love the acting. Uh, for me, the plot is probably going to be the weak point here uh, because it's rather linear. And ultimately, it's not a big surprise, okay? I think we needed more uh, more delineation. Is the child just an AI? And, you know, is the weird chaotic pattern it's watching on TV its training data or its test data? And if so, if it's such an advanced AI, 
why is it getting its input in such an analogue way? I thought some of that was a bit quaky and shaky, to be honest with you. Uh, but, I l- but the implication is the implication is that they're aliens. Oh, okay. Because that's well. Otherwise, why would it be a frog, a frog-necked creature that you're speaking to? Surely, because well, he just be down the drain. He might have just seen a frog, mightn't he? <laughs> Um. <laughs> no, it's, it's clear. It's, it's, why, why it's clear the they're aliens, him a but book? are they alien SI or are they alien carbon? I thought, for me, I would have enjoyed some sort of revelation or insight into, you know, why is he getting his training data in that way? Uh, what makes him so? Because there's such intelligent mimicry, mimicking uh, like life forms, aren't they, that actually can understand humans? And yet, why. Why they're learning in such a weird way? I don't know. It didn't really all make. It didn't all tie in in a way that I thought was satisfying. I mean, some of the descriptions of this film describe it as being allegorical about yes. you know capitalism and consumerism and, and stuff like that. Probably. I didn't really get that, except I mean, obviously there is a obviously well, there's yeah, a very. But if you've ever lived in a communist country, uh, excuse me, the housing estates are just the same. Sure, I mean, but we're talking about the- we're talking about modern industrial society rather than capitalism, aren't we? Of all its various kinds. Yeah, but I mean, it's not a very clever, clever critique, is it? It's of like a straight up and down the line. It's lame, isn't it? I mean, I'm not saying it's so not relevant. You know, we've all faced that moment if you ever moved into a new suburb, you know, and looked at those fences you've paid two thousand pounds for that divide your land. Which is, you know, a badminton court from the next person's allotment kind of thing. And you kind of think, well, what, what is the point of this all this delineation, delineation of ownership? So, it, I mean, but yeah, but that's human nature on the capitalism, isn't it? I think. I just don't really know what it's telling me. It's got a nice kind of cyclical thing where mm. it all hooks up together. You know, it's Finnegan's Escher. Wake, begin again. It's very Escher, wasn't it? You mentioned that once before. It was like an Escher painting of a movie. So, I mean, I'll give it a six for plot. plot yeah, I'm going to give it 6.5. Uh, it does kind of tie in nicely. I just felt that it could have... It had time to do some more things and, you know, raise some more mysteries and shine some light on the mysteries that it raised. And it didn't do that. Do we do uh, special effects here? I think we do, actually, yeah. Because uh, mostly for their efficacious and minimal use. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, uh, they are the special effects are kind of obvious and not uh, what's the word? Not effective. I mean, the clouds don't look real, but they're not supposed to look real. So in that sense, it's very good, isn't it? It is good. Uh, George Osborne, George Osborne will be say this is this is a you know give the thumbs up as a blueprint to austerity in special effects. You know, only using the special effects you really need. So the the, <laughs> the cotton clouds. That's what's reminded me of the orb, little fluffy clouds. It, it has the unreal feel of that of that song. Actually, this 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 whole movie. Uh, yeah, uh, the kid with his swelling neck. You know, uh, the Hansel and Gretel sort of uh, flimsy curb that lifts up. You know, there wasn't much in there, but but it all worked. But effective. Yeah, effective. I'll give it a seven. For special I'm going to give eight for special effects. And I think we've got to do something about mood, mood, uh, yeah, creepiness. Yeah, well, we can't we can't really do you know how does this alien life form function? Is it silicon or carbon? Arrival did Arrival try to do that when they're trying to talk to that uh, blob in the sky? When they're talking circles, yeah, you see that kind of addressed it badly, but it did try to address what is the nature of this alien's intelligence. And we don't. I, I would have liked to have seen some more of that. So we can't score it in terms of digging into aliens and what they might be or be not like. So yeah, let's do mood. Great for mood. I'm going to score it nine. It is very creepy. Yeah, it's successfully creepy, and you know, uh, it, it, almost everything about it manages to pull off some like level of disturbing, disturbing creepiness. So. I'll give it an eight. Though. Whoa! I did. For I didn't an overall think, score, I didn't think I was going to like this, but I did do in the end, despite myself, in spite of myself. I was kind of willing myself not to like it, mostly because Richard chose it. Uh, but a good choice, a really good movie, high recommend. Okay, it is short, it is slow, but it's short. So if you don't like the slow pace of this, it won't really affect you. Me overall, I'm going to have to score it. I didn't want to. It's going to have to be an eight point five. 
And I'm going to give it a seven because it's a bit quiet yeah. and a little bit understated. Um, but maybe that's not a bad thing. All right, then. Well, Paul, assuming that I don't succumb to my movie cough and die, and oh. assuming, by the way, we both survive Christmas, well, we need to choose a movie that we're going to have to watch some point over Christmas. Okay. Paul. Well, I was hoping for something festive, and I haven't got anything like that to offer you, Richard. So here it goes. Are you ready? I'm ready. The Girl with All the Gifts. Okay. Troll. Troll. Apollo yeah. 13 or Apollo 18? What? Dual select. And finally, Never Let Me Go. Never Let Me Go. No, mm. don't say okay. you're not spoiled for choice, because that's, that's, that's a whole BBC2 festive... Well... There's, there's two that I'm immediately attracted to. The girl with all the gifts, obviously, has a, a, a seems to have a Christmas-related message, Whoa. doesn't it? With the gifts. But I really want to see the Norwegian film Troll. So Troll it is. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Troll. Yay! We yay! Merry Christmas for those who are having a Christmas, and happy Winterval. <laughs> for those who don't care about Christmas. And if you're listening in midsummer, three years later, then, uh, well, I'll see Better you next you week. Right, okay, so see you on the next one. Ciao for now. It's been great. Join us next time for episode 21. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>